นโมทัสสะคุอะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุอะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะคุอะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะsituations and teachings that I've received, and there was one that stood out that I, I did share with this person. And however, afterwards, uh, I realized that I only mentioned half of the story, half of the teaching. And so this evening, I'd like to share this again, um, a little bit more completely. Uh, The situation was when I was a very young monk, uh, living at Wat Nana Chat, and the very early days of the monastery there, and and I was uh, typically having a lot of difficulties, uh, struggled a lot on many fronts, and on this occasion I was uh, possessed with self-doubt and worry and. One way or another, uh, the uh, one of the other monks there. Took me over to talk with Ajahn Chah. It wasn't very far. We could walk over to Wat Ba Pong, and and I certainly was very grateful for the opportunity. And I wasn't able to speak Thai very fluently, and so he was going to be my translator. So we went over there, and the Ajahn Chah was sitting under his kuti, and and my translator started relating to him. And why I was there, and and what was remarkable was the, and what I still remember now is the quality of attention that Ajahn Chah paid to my situation. I was a very junior, very confused young monk, and and here was this great teacher giving me such high quality attention, and it wasn't. Just an intense focus, but my memory is that it was there was such a degree of kindness and compassion, and and the way he looked at me, the way he seemed to be listening, and and also the way he spoke, and and when the translator had finished explaining the predicament and and Ajahn Chah's words, and that he his bow was which is. And translation is said. Oh, I've been there. Said I've been there, and there was such caring in the way he said it. And and he went on to explain how you know he's been through periods of such intense doubt. And he said, "Kitwa see such a rebirth," which means that I thought my head was going to explode and had so much doubt. And 
And it was such a gift to be given that this quality of attention and the experience of being seen in my suffering was what stayed with me as so remarkable. He did go on to say other things. and However, that quality of attention was such a gift and something that here I am all these years, many, many years, since four decades or, or something later, that I still have this great gratitude uh, for that experience. And certainly the experience of self-doubt and confusion, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. However, to receive that quality of kindness and compassion, something I feel very enormously grateful for. And the reason he was able to do that, and of course I'm speculating here because I, I don't know what was going on inside Ajahn Chah. However, the fact that he was so willing and so able to offer such a gift, I would suggest, is because he was freed from his own self-concern. He, he wasn't thinking, oh, here's another scruffy, confused Westerner and turning up at the monastery with all their problems and it wasn't nothing like that. And certainly he wasn't being paid to give me his time or his attention. There were lots of other people who would have liked to have his attention. And yet here he was freely giving it, recognizing the confused state that I was in. And automatically, I would suggest, automatically, because he had done the work of clearing away the dross of self-centeredness, the dross of self-concern and compassion manifests I would say very very naturally, very beautifully and, and very helpfully very helpfully in another conversation I had recently uh, with a senior monk he shared with me a story or a situation that he found himself in some years ago which related to the same theme it was in his case however he was waiting to catch a bus he had arrived in a town and had some time to wait before he could catch the bus so he was just sitting there waiting and as the time was approaching he only had about two or three minutes left before he had to go off and catch the bus and, and then this homeless chap very scruffy, very ragged, derelict-looking fellow approached him and was obviously wanting to talk. And so on this occasion, although he only had two or three minutes available, there was something that struck him about the despair of this chap. He was talking about the, how he'd lost everything it, his wife had turned him out, he couldn't see his kids, he had lost his job, living on the streets in a terrible, destitute state. And so on the occasion, this, this monk just decided, well, I've only got this two or three minutes, but he really made a very strong determination 
I'm just going to meet this fellow in his suffering. There was something about the pain of the situation that the monk himself was able to recognize, not that he had been destitute on the streets like that. However, there was something about the state of despair that he recognized. And, and so he made this determination just to, we've only got this brief period of time, but just to really meet this fellow where he's at. And sure enough, after two or three minutes, um, he had to up and leave and go and catch his bus. I imagine he apologized for having to leave so quickly. However, he did and went off back to the monastery. Then he related how several weeks, or maybe it was a few months uh, uh, later, this same chap turned up at the monastery. And he had his wife and children with him. And he was there because he wanted to say thank you. He realized that in just that very brief encounter, he recognized that what he was receiving there, he had never given to his wife. He was never, listen- he was never listening to his wife. And he was ringing up and complaining and about this and that. However, he never gave her the benefit of being heard. And so he did. It made a big difference. And so he came out to the monastery and wanted to express appreciation. So these stories, these incidents, I mention them as an example of the power of compassion. It's, It's so tempting sometimes when somebody approaches us with a problem to think we've got to try and understand them, to think basically, to think. And they maybe haven't even finished talking about what they want to say before we start telling them how to sort it out, how to fix them. It's very much how we're conditioned in our culture to value conceptual thinking and conceptual understanding. And and, and I know myself when sometimes... Uh, people approach me with difficulties and and the temptation to try and come up with a solution, try and come up with an answer, and then sometimes to feel inadequate and and feel guilty. You know, I, I don't I don't know how to help this person. However, uh, let's not be in too much of a hurry to bypass this quality, this possibility of meeting somebody where they're at in their suffering. That's what Ajahn Chah offered to me on that occasion. And that's what this other senior monk offered to this homeless fellow, just to meet the person where they're at without judgment. Again, it's very easy when somebody approaches us with their suffering, their pain, their, their, their grief, their, their despair, for our own unmet grief and despair to be triggered. And then we become distracted by it. And the same with Ajahn Chah, he, uh, he seemed to have dealt with what he needed to deal with. And he had his compassion and attention freely available to, to share. So it's worth registering this and as a, whatever our situation in life is. Uh, if we want to be helpful, to others, who want to be helpful to ourselves, let's not 
be in a hurry to go up into our heads and try and understand the pain of life. Yes, we were just chanting the Dhamma Chakrabhavatana Sutta, the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths, and, and this wisdom teaching and the understanding of which is the Buddha said has the, the power to liberate us. However, if we're in too much of a hurry, we maybe miss some stages. The actual experience of suffering needs to be met, needs to be felt, not just met in our heads in abstraction. To really register somebody else's pain, it's not easy because, as I was saying, it's quite possible our own unmet pain will get activated. Maybe some of you are familiar with that traditional story in the Theravadan teachings about Kisagotami. And so it's the story associated with the Dhammapada, verse 114, where the Buddha met this young woman who was beside herself in grief. Her son had died, and she was so distraught and so despairing that she couldn't even put the child down. She was carrying this child around, this dead child. She was carrying it around and eventually somebody in the village that she was in told her that there's this, this spiritual teacher, the Buddha, is, is nearby. Why don't you go and see him and maybe he can help you. And So she went off to see the Buddha and the Buddha on that occasion, he didn't say, no, I can't help you, your child is dead. What he said was, go away and come back again with a cup of mustard seed. And the cup of mustard seed must come from a house where nobody's died. And so, of course, she rushes off and very keen and very hopeful and to find a cup of mustard seed and bring it back. And The houses of people in the village, were, everybody was very willing to give her a cup of mustard seed. However, when she inquired, has anybody died in this house? And I said, oh, yes, of course somebody's died here. Lots of people have died here. Mm. And so she'd go into another house and another house and the same answer and another house and the same answer until, as the, the night went by, something dawned on her. Mm. What was activated in her was the compassionate understanding for the suffering of others. She recognized that she wasn't alone. The insanity of her self-obsession was dispelled by the compassionate understanding that everybody goes through this. And in that dispelling of that state of insane grief that she was suffering so terribly from, understanding arose, the understanding that all beings get old, get sick and die and went back to the Buddha to express her gratitude. And so it's, I think again, worth noting that the power of compassion to transform the suffering of life, we, we might like to think that it's understanding alone that liberates us, it's wisdom that liberates us. Of course, 
the wisdom of the Buddha is profound and, and we need to study it and reflect on it. However, let's not miss the steps that need to be taken or let's not try to bypass the pain of life. And, and how do we meet the pain of life? Well, that's, that's what compassion is. The Buddha didn't just come out straight away with the wisdom teachings and, and tell this grieving woman all things are permanent and not self. And didn't, she didn't, he didn't tell her that. And the message he gave was, yes, I can do something to help you. And he met her where she was at. So yes, there was the wisdom teachings. However, first there was the compassion. And that incident that I was mentioning about Ajahn Chah, he later went on to talk about how, what he said, or what I remember he said on that occasion was, he said, you know, if something is uncertain and you insist that it be certain, then you're going to suffer. If something is actually uncertain and you insist that it be certain, then you're going to suffer. And that's worth dwelling on. That's worth remembering. However, if he had said that to me straight off when, when my translator had first had finished explaining my predicament, and I don't know whether I would have heard it. So this principle is, again, as most of us would know, is encoded in the Buddha's teachings on the, the what we call the four Brahma-viharas, the, the four divine abidings. Conscious kindness, compassion, empathetic delight, and equanimity. These four divine abidings, this model for living that the Buddha gave us. And recognizing that, yes, those first three there, metta, karuna, mudita, conscious kindness, compassion, compassion, which is empathy in the context of suffering, and then mudita, empathetic delight, taking delight in other people's well-being. And then equanimity. It's really important to note the place of equanimity. It can be, again, tempting in these teachings to pick up the fun bit. It's like, it's just like being convinced that because cultivating kindness and compassion and, and empathetic delight is so agreeable that that's going to be enough, that would be a mistake. But added this fourth quality, equanimity. And equanimity, cultivated equanimity can be an expression of wisdom and also it can contribute to the cultivation of wisdom. It's quite possible to cause a lot of harm if we don't have equanimity, if we don't have wisdom. It's very possible to think that we've got good intentions and to think that we're being kind when in fact we can be causing difficulty. And these days it's, it's not rare that there's parents who are overly risk-averse and won't let their children take any risks, won't let them go outside to play and the children grow up with quite 
hypersensitive and yeah. unable to set boundaries for themselves and that's really unfortunate. The parents might have felt they were being kind, however it wasn't, wasn't wise, it wasn't skillful. Or you look back at history in this country, there was an expression that spare the rod and spoil the child, which I hope people don't use that expression these days. The principle behind it, of course, is understandable and suitable. You know, good parenting involves you know, giving the right kind of guidance and, and discipline to children so, so that they learn to become established in a balanced way and they can live their lives fruitfully, meaningfully. However, spare the rod and spoil the child, literally, of course. No, spare the rod means that if you don't whack the child enough with a stick, then it's not going to turn out any good. Obviously, that's unsuitable. However, that understanding has been around for a long time. And somehow it's kind to beat children. Or religious zealots taking children away from their indigenous parents, thinking that they're saving their children from Satan, thinking that it's an act of kindness and compassion. It's certainly not wise. And so recognizing the beauty of kindness, compassion, empathetic delight, also recognizing the importance of equanimity. And in the monastery, often in morning chanting, we recite the verses for the cultivation of equanimity. I am the owner of my karma heir to my kamma, and whatever kamma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. All beings are the owners of their kamma, heir to their kamma. Whatever kamma they shall do for good or for ill, of that they will be the heirs. And what we're doing in that reflection is making the effort to give rise to the accuracy of perception that recognises limitations. It's not possible to take responsibility for anybody else. Even the Buddha himself said, all I can do is point the way. We can't take responsibility for anybody else. Too much kindness, too much compassion, we might fall into the mistaken view that we can take responsibility for other people when we can't. All beings are responsible for them, their own karma. So this reflection that we do, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma. All beings are the owners of their karma, heir to their karma. Establishing pathways in our minds so that we learn to think in a particular direction. Think in the direction that, are, that conduces with equanimity. Mature equanimity, as I said, can be an expression of wisdom. And without wisdom, the mistake is that we become self-obsessed. It's it's the the nature of our minds, the nature of the human consciousness, that without wisdom, the personality, the ego, very easily takes itself too seriously. With wisdom, with equanimity, there's the 
possibility of not taking ourselves quite so seriously, learning to hold our views and opinions more lightly. So there's one more story I'd like to share. It's on the same theme, and it's a uh, somebody I've known for a good number of years who had spent a big part of his adult life as a professor, as a doctor of medicine, and and then was trained as an acupuncturist. And when he was stepping back from his professional career, he came down with cancer. He'd been an oncologist and. And he's looking forward to years of retirement and and then suddenly kapow he came down with cancer. And the process of recovering from that, three or four, four years later, came down with cancer again. And that was not welcome. And he he explained to me how much fear, how anger, anxiety Indignation. Why me? Why is this happening to me? And I've been a vegetarian all these years and I've sat on so many silent retreats and so much meditation and, and suffering intensely. However, he had a strong commitment to his meditation practice and cultivation of wise reflection and so he looked at it sat with it, reflected upon it, until eventually what arose was a recognition that he was resisting the suffering, his suffering. This why me was an expression of resistance and with the recognition that he was resisting it, there was a shift and in its place eventually emerged the thought, what can this cancer teach me? That shift, although we may not conventionally recognize it or talk about it as compassion, I think that's an accurate way of understanding that quality of attention. Compassionate attention, when we, when we pay compassionate attention to our own suffering, it can, has the power to dispel the resistance. The resistance that's saying no to what's real. The, the habit of being up in our heads and trying to understand why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? If we can just remember to come into our hearts, come into our bodies, feel the pain. Feel the suffering. Meet the suffering. In this case, this fellow, he, he talks about how in that willingness to meet the pain of his predicament, there's this deep, what he described as a deep understanding that this life is uncertain. This life is unsafe. Now, as an idea, that doesn't sound kind of world-shattering. However, for this fellow, he talks about it as being transformative. And in the place of all the suffering that he was experiencing was a deep sense of calm and peace. Which 
wasn't just a passing mood. It was, I know, over the years since that happened for him, he's been through the grief of the loss of somebody he's very close with, and also during the, the period of the pandemic when many other people were thoroughly confused and resisting and objecting and complaining to the conditions that the lockdown put them under, he was able to move through that. And He's too modest a fellow to talk about having equanimity, but he does talk about having a good balance, a good balanced perspective that came as a result of that shift in his relationship to the suffering. Feeling threatened, you know, cancer of course you feel threatened. Threat, feeling threatened is painful. Are we going to resist the feeling threatened or do we have that compassionate attention that we can turn towards the very feeling of I feel threatened, I feel let down, I feel betrayed. Can we meet it with that quality of attention? So these uh, teachings that the Buddha gave us, the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, I, I think they're a, a brilliant model for how we human beings can be living harmoniously together. Recognizing first the, the warm-heartedness of kindness and compassion and then the wisdom, the wisdom that needs to be cultivated. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andame.